I happened to find a lot of different ones that I thought that you might enjoy or that might be of interest to you. Um, but mostly, I have to say, in this regard, they were mostly uh, political ones, and that's really unusual for me. Um, and I liked all of them that I've picked that were political. Um, it could be the era, you know, the era going, you know, the elections and everything. I'm not really sure. But this one is called How U.S. Made Putin. From a, a Yale University. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome today to today's event. Uh, my name is Doug Rogers. I teach in the anthropology department, and I'm the faculty director of the program in Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies. Uh, today is a special event, not just because of our guest, who's one of the most uh, well-known, most distinguished, and most fascinating journalists and broadcasters in the past 50 years anywhere in the world, uh, but because, in a much uh, smaller and more modest way, uh, this is the first time that the words program in Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies are being uttered in public at Yale. Um, <laughs> our program dates from uh, July 1st, 2018. Um, uh, and we think that the interest that we're hearing around campus and uh, uh, full auditoriums like today are good evidence of expanding interest in uh, the study of, um, of this part of the world. Uh, so thank you for coming. Look at our uh, website, get on our newsletter. We hope to bring you many more events like this. I want to thank uh, the Macmillan Center, the Council on European Studies, uh, for helping us with this event. Also, uh, and especially the Pointer Fellowship in Journalism, and the Office of Public Affairs and Communication. Eileen O'Connor is somewhere here. Um, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for your partnership in this event and uh, many other events we've had in the past and, and hope to have in the future. Um, the plan for today is that I will turn things over to uh, Konstantin Morovnik, who I'm also very grateful to for suggesting uh, this program and for doing a lot of the work to make it happen. He'll introduce our guest. Uh, we'll then speak for uh, a little while, uh, followed by uh, sort of open uh, question and answer and discussion period. Uh, so without further ado, Kostya. It is my distinct honor to uh, welcome uh, Vladimir Posner to Yale. Uh, Mr. Posner needs an introduction only from for those who are too young to remember the 80s and the 90s in this country when he regularly appeared on Ted Koppel's uh, Nightline and the Phil Donahue Show and then co-hosted the Posner Donahue Show on CNBC. At that time, he once visited Yale, so it's not uh, a welcome, but a welcome back. Uh, Mr. Posner may also need an introduction to those who are detached from contemporary Russia, where he is omnipresent in the media. For the past 10 years, he has hosted a weekly show, Posner, uh, where he interviews various national and world leaders from all walks of life. Gorbachev, Sakurov, Gaidar, Shoigu, Ted Turner and Vexelberg, Hillary Clinton and Sting, Michael McFall and Ksenia Sobchak, among many others, had a chance to face Mr. Posner's thoughtful scrutiny and be judged by millions of Russian viewers. Mr. Posner's opinions on a wide range of questions from politics to soccer, from history to gastronomy and arts quickly go viral. 
they have become a fact of uh, Russian life to such an extent that he has been termed half seriously, half in jest, uh, the spiritual leader of the nation and its moral compass. This is despite the fact that Mr. Posner is Russian just as much as he is an American or French. He was born in France and christened in Notre Dame, grew up in the U.S., and came to Russia only at the age of 19. Perhaps this cosmopolitan aspect of his biography is what endears him to Russian public, tired, like any other public, of ideological agendas. Perhaps this ability to be simultaneously Russian and American and European attunes Mr. Posner to the subtleties of different perspectives and brings him one step closer to the much desired and, less, and, and no less appreciated objectivity and truth, especially now when the gaps separating governments and nations are only widening and one side increasingly refuses to consider the views of the other. In his more than five decades in the field of journalism, Mr. Posner has done his share of partisanship and propaganda. However, this changed in the 80s when he pioneered a project of so-called space bridges or telebridges that connected Russian and American audiences. Moscow viewers named him TV journalist number one in 1989, and this high mark of recognition has never decreased ever since. In 1989, and in, uh, from 1994 to 2008, Mr. Posner headed the Russian Television Academy. In 1997, he founded the School for Television Excellence, a, plat a platform for education and promotion of young journalists. He's written several books and made a number of documentary miniseries about different countries, their cultures and people. These films brought the U.S., France, Italy, Germany, England, Israel, and Spain closer to millions of Russian people. It is my hope that this conversation with Mr. Posner at Yale will also achieve what he has been so good at, that it will bring Russian views and opinions a little closer to our students and colleagues and will maintain what we all need now the most, a dialogue based on mutual understanding and respect. So please join me in welcoming Vladimir Posner. Quite an introduction. Um, I'd like to say a couple of words about who I am and what I am, notwithstanding what we just heard. Um, it's important that you understand that I don't represent anybody um, or anything, any organization, political, social, whatever. I represent myself. I am an independent journalist, and that's an animal that is disappearing in Russia and not only in Russia. Um, I think uh, for me it's important that I say that and I hope I'm going I'm not going to speak long because I was told that we would have a conversation afterwards and I think that might be the most interesting part of it because um, you have questions or views that you might want to share with me and I can't guess them in advance but there are certain things I'd like to say before 
we have that conversation. I'd like to say, first of all, that we are at an extremely dangerous moment today. Never have the relations between Russia and the United States, or the Soviet Union, that's what it was before, been at this level. During the worst times of the Cold War, when I was living in the Soviet Union, and I remember all that very, very well. Russians were anti-White House, anti-Wall Street, but not anti-American in their vast majority. In fact, there was a kind of a warm feeling vis-a-vis Americans. Today, that's different. Today, it's anti-American at the grassroots level. And there's a reason for it. Another thing that is, to me, scary is that neither side seems to be afraid of nuclear weapons. 30 years ago, those of you who are of my age certainly remember an American movie called The Day After, which is about what happens to you and to your country after a nuclear strike. There was fear of these weapons as there was in the Soviet Union. There was a realization that these weapons can, and if used, will destroy our country. Today, there's a feeling when you talk to people, it's as if there are no nuclear weapons. It really doesn't seem to play a role in how we act. And the danger of a, not a deliberate nuclear exchange, but an accidental one has grown because the level of mistrust between the two countries has grown as well. There have been several times in the past when computers warned of a nuclear attack. The US and But it never got to the real thing because people took the time to really check it out. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't have a long time. If an ICBM is launched from Russia, it'll take about 10 minutes for it to hit the U.S. So you have, a, and vice versa, obviously. Um, so you don't have a long time, but you do have some. But my feeling is that if today those same computers malfunctioned and sit on either side, that an attack has been launched, the response would be immediate. Because the feeling is that this is what's going to happen. Not that long ago, we were all very optimistic, weren't we? No. Gorbachev, Russians, we're going to be friends, we're going to be... And in such a really short period of time, how did this happen? No. Why are we at the point that we are today? And I'm not saying who's to blame. We still have to go under our chairs at school. But we should try to understand exactly what but did happen. But we're not in that situation now. You're just all screwed up. The Soviet Union, once Gorbachev took over, didn't really last very long. He came to power in March of 1985, and by December 1991, there was no more Soviet Union. It, some people say it collapsed didn't collapse. In a place called the Bielorysky Pusha, which is a kind of a forest, three presidents, the president of Ukraine, the president
president of Belarus and the president of Russia proper, Mr. Yeltsin, decided to part company, decided to disband the Soviet Union. Now, each had his own reasons, definitely. But if we look at Mr. Yeltsin, his reason was very clear. He was the president of Russia, so he was number two to Gorbachev, because Gorbachev was president of uh, the Soviet Union, of which Russia was part, the largest part, but only part. Get rid of the Soviet Union, and there's no president, and you get rid of Gorbachev. And that's precisely what he did. So no more Soviet Union, quickly no more Warsaw Pact, of course, that is to say, countries that were usually called Soviet satellites and part of a military alliance with the Soviet Union, that alliance disappeared. And so the United States had to figure out how do we deal with this new entity called Russia? How do we deal with it? There's no more Soviet Union. What is going to be U.S. policy vis-a-vis this country? And of course, Yeltsin also had to think about what is going to be Russia's attitude towards the United States. Um, You may remember that uh, soon after the Soviet Union ceased to exist, and I think it was February of 1992, um, Yeltsin came to the United States and he addressed a joint session Congress. And he said, the people of Russia are offering their hand to the people of the United States in friendship to build a better world, a world without war, a world without peace. And this was exactly what the vast majority of Russians wanted. And I would even say that today, the vast majority of Russians would like to have, if not a friendship with the United States, at least a partnership. There's no doubt to my mind that that's the case. So that was what Yeltsin wanted. And what kind of response did he get? What kind of response did Russia get? Well, the United States could have picked two ways of treating Russia. One was to say, let's treat Russia like we did our enemies after World War II. Germany, Italy, and then some of the countries that were occupied, such as France, or were not occupied, such as UK, but were really badly hurt. Let's find a way to see to it that in those countries, Nazis, fascists do not come back and communists do not come to power. And may I remind you that in those days, The Communist Party of France and the Communist Party of Italy were very, very powerful. And that plan turned out, was called later, the Marshall Plan, which was basically a financial idea to spend a lot of money, but in a very precise way, to develop certain things and not to allow others to develop. Now, that could be the policy to adopt vis-a-vis Russia. See to it that 
democracy begins to develop in that country. And let me say, just for the record, Russia never in its entire thousand years never had democracy. Completely absent. So it wasn't like something that once upon a time Russians had and then they lost, but they knew what it was. They didn't know what it was. So let's spend money on getting democracy moving in Russia and seeing to it that the communists do not get back. And that could have been one approach. The other approach was to say, for 40 years, you held a nuclear bomb over our heads. You lost the Cold War, and you're going to pay for it. You're going to be punished for what you did. And there were people who supported one view and people who supported the other in this country. Early in 1992, a document was produced in the United States by a gentleman called Paul Wolfowitz. You may know who he was. He was Under Secretary of Defense of the United States, responsible for policy. The document he produced came to be called the Wolfowitz Doctrine. Not officially, but that's the way it was addressed. It later was incorporated in something that is officially called the Bush Doctrine. That document was leaked to the New York Times, and so it became public. And what it basically said, and you can look it up, it's available, you know, just go to Wolfowitz uh, Doctrine and you'll, you'll find it. What it basically said was this. The United States should never again allow any other country to challenge it. The United States must remain the superior country. And we should tell our allies not to worry about developing their own weapons because we will do that for them. And we must watch out for Russia because we, can't, we don't know which way it's going to go. The bear might get up on his hind legs again and growl. Um, when that document was leaked to the New York Times, it was an outcry uh, by the more liberal, if you will. Uh, in America now, the word liberal and conservative has lost the meaning that it once upon a time had. So when I say liberal, I, I'm not sure that um, I'm saying the right word, but at least uh, many people were upset by this document. Um, Edward Kennedy said that it was an imperialist document that no country could or should accept. It was quickly, as it were, removed and rewritten by um, Mr. Cheney, not a very liberal man in any sense as far as I can remember, and um, um, the uh, Secretary of Defense in those days, Mr. Powell. But basically, it retained that view. Russia and America must remain, must be the only superpower. And basically, that view was the one that was accepted. It was the one that would accept it. And the attitude towards Russia was pretty much, you're no longer a superpower. You are a second-rate country. 
just just keep quiet please uh, this became evident and would be evident to you if you follow the policy of the United States now let's begin with going back to Gorbachev and his meetings when he was asked by several people all of them quite important to allow Germany to reunite and take down the Berlin Wall and he was told by James Baker and now this is not many people I mean when I would say this many people would say it's not true it's not true he was told by James Baker if this happens NATO will not move one inch eastward well not long ago on December 12th 2017 the National Defense Archives of George Washington University declassified the minutes of the Baker-Gorbachev discussion and it's there but it's not only Baker who said that to him. There were several people in. The German leadership did, West German in those days, and so on. And finally, I'm not saying, I don't know whether, whether Gorbachev could have stopped Germany from reuniting, but the fact of the matter is that they said yes and took down the Berlin Wall. And NATO stayed put. It stayed put in those days. It stayed put under... Bush Sr. It stayed put during the first four years of Clinton. But in the next four years, in 1996 approximately, a decision was taken to enlarge NATO. Three countries. Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary. Now, I'm going to read something to you. Uh, you know who Thomas Friedman is? New York Times, old hand uh, columnist. He, uh, when this happened, this is already 19, this is um, 1998, he called up George Kennan. I don't know if you're all aware who George Kennan was, but he was one, in my opinion, perhaps one of the most brilliant minds, political minds of the United States, the second half of the 20th century, the man who devised the idea of containment of the Soviet Union rather than war against the Soviet Union, successfully did this. So, you know, a brilliant man who, uh, who established the, the very foundation of U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. So Thomas Friedman called him up. The article he published in the New York Times is called Foreign Affairs, Now a Word from X. Why X? Because in 1947, in the magazine foreign affairs um, uh, Mr. Kennan had published this article about containment and he signed it X so he called him up and he asked him what did he think about this decision to enlarge NATO let me quote I think this is May 2nd 1998 I think it is the beginning of a new cold war said Mr. Kennan from his Princeton home I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. That decision 
and now I'm giving you my opinion, is what really started this this relation with turning it south, as you might say. That's where it all began. Because the Russian reaction, and specifically this is 1998, so uh, this is Yeltsin, late Yeltsin, was, you promised not to do this. So how do we trust you if you make a promise? I would also like you to perhaps try to um, solve a little problem. It's kind of a ma- not, not ma- mathematical. Take the time from when Gorbachev came to power, March 1985, to 2007, when Putin has been in power for seven years. That's 22 years. I ask you to find a single thing in foreign or domestic policies done by the Soviet Union, while still existed, and then Russia proper, that might in any way anger, irk, disappoint the United States. Let me answer that for you. Nothing. Not one thing during that period. Now, what did Russia get as a result of that? First, the enlargement of NATO. So that was number one. Then the bombing of Yugoslavia that was done by NATO, and NATO is, after all, dependent mostly on the United States, let's face it, right? Uh, The UN did not condone this. So the bombing of Yugoslavia, that's uh, from March 24th, 99 to June 10th, 99. Then uh, Kosovo and recognition of Kosovo, although it had been part of Serbia for centuries, And there were people in Russia who said, you're letting the gin out of the bottle. Because if you do this, then there are other countries that will do the same. And Russia did the same. Visit Abkhazia to begin with. Okay? Uh, Yeltsin was very angry. He made a speech. He said, and of course this is very Yeltsin-like, he said, we're not Haiti. You can't treat us like Haiti. We're a great country. We have a great past. And Russia will come back. Russia will come back. He was really, really angered. Didn't say the politically correct thing, but he spoke his mind. Uh, Then finally, 2000, the year 2000, Mr. Putin, is not elected, although elected, um, to the presidency. And one of the first things he does is to ask for Russia to become a member of NATO. Why not be a member of NATO? NATO was created to defend Europe, and perhaps not only Europe, from Soviet aggression from a country that you couldn't predict. There is no more Soviet Union, and there is no more Warsaw Pact. Why can't we create an organization where we're part of it, said Mr. Putin, and act together to protect from some kind of aggression? 
he was told, go take a walk, basically. What about some kind of partnership or becoming part of the European Union? Again, and this is all documented. Everything I say, except when I say my opinion, is documented. You can look it up. And he said, they would, no, you know, you're too big. Your country's too big. You can't. Uh, and all the while, Russia was being reminded that it's no longer really that important a country. Now, one of the things you must keep in mind is that much like the Americans, the Russians believe that they have a mission, that their country was selected by destiny. Now, you know, my being French, I laugh at that. I laugh both at you and at them, because we French know that we're the best, and we, we have no, no, we have no mission. You know, the, that's it. But seriously speaking, that's a fact. And so the sense of losing this, this, this um, aura of greatness, of being told, we don't care about you. The, uh, the reaction of the average Russian to that was one of, you're, uh, you're insulting me. You're not, you don't respect me. And so the anger, gradually, and the anger focused on Gorbachev. Many, many Russians figured, you sold the country. You don't stand up to these men, to these, to the United States. And then the same thing for Yeltsin. You'd be surprised how unpopular Gorbachev and Yeltsin are today in Russia. Maybe 5% support them. Precisely for that reason. Well, there are some others as well that have to do with economic things, but nonetheless. So now here we have Putin, who, as you know, as soon as 9-11 happens, calls up Bush Jr., W., and offers his help. And yes, and does help in Afghanistan. And if you want to have your soldiers, your military people in, in Central Asia, right on our borders, be my guest. And in Georgia, absolutely. So it's not just words. You know, we, we want to fight terrorism together. And uh, gets nothing in, in, in exchange. So finally, in 2007, in Munich, um, speaking to the 20, the group of 20 in Munich, Putin says this. This is February 10th. I think it is obvious that NATO expansion does not have any relation with the modernization of the alliance itself or with ensuring security in Europe. On the contrary, it represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. And we have the right to ask, against whom is this expansion intended? And what happened to the assurance of our Western partners made after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact? Where are those declarations today? No one even remembers them. But I will allow myself to remind this audience what was said. 
I would like to quote the speech of General Secretary Mr. Werner of Brussels on May 17, 1990. He said at the time, quote, the fact that we are not ready to place a NATO army outside of German territory gives the Soviet Union a firm security guarantee. Where are these guarantees? And do you know what the answer was? The answer was, yes, but that was guarantees given to the Soviet Union and your Russia. Well, what kind of a reaction would you expect? Um, last year, I think it was, making a foreign policy speech, Putin said, our mistake was that we trusted you too much. And your mistake was that you tried to take advantage of that. That is the situation today. Now, it may seem to you that I'm blaming the United States. I don't want the word blame used. It was a mistaken political decision. It was not the Russians. It was this decision that finally led to this change in Putin's attitude towards the West and in particular towards the United States, which is why I say how U.S. policy created Putin the way he is today. And the really, if you will, um, um, dangerous thing is that Russian leadership, or I should be more precise and say Vladimir Putin, does not trust the West, does not trust the United States which makes it very difficult to move away from where we are today. So that, that's something I want to underline. So we are in now in a new arms race, which is terrible. We are in a new Cold War, which threatens all of us. The danger of an accidental nuclear exchange has grown. We no longer seem to fear that. There used to be demonstrations. You know, get rid of nuclear weapons. That's not happening anymore. The uh, possibility of a terrorist organization somehow getting a nuclear weapon has grown. And to make it look like someone used it on each side, not the terrorists. So that... I believe is something we should all understand. And finally, as someone who works in media, I would like to say that Russian media, uh, mainstream, I'm, I mean mainstream media, paints America black. Russian media, mainstream media, controlled directly or indirectly by the government um, shows a, an extremely negative picture of the United States, U.S. policy, and so on. And much to my surprise, mainstream American media does exactly the same thing vis-a-vis -vis Russia, which to me is amazing because this is supposed to be a free media as differing from the Russian one. As someone who works in Russian media, I can say it's it's hard to call it a free media. There's some opposition newspapers and radio, but that's not mainstream. They address a very small number of people. 
So there we are. I think I think people who call themselves journalists in my book, they're they're not journalists. But those people have played and are playing a destructive role in creating the fear, the dislike, the distrust that the people in both countries have vis-a-vis each other. And the fact that we don't seem to question our media is really quite interesting. But there it is, nonetheless. We just take it. So I'd like to wind up with a quote from a gentleman, no, I hesitate to use the word gentleman, from a man whose name was Hermann Goering. You all know who he was? There may be some people who are too young to know. Well, he was um, Hitler's right-hand man, and he commanded the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. And he was, of course, at Nuremberg. He was judged, sentenced to death, to hang. But he managed to get some poison, probably from the Soviets, of course, uh, since they poison people, as we know. Um, so, so not to be hanged. But he was um, interviewed by an American journalist shortly before he committed suicide. And here's what he said. And I think this is something that we should all remember. Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia nor in England, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy. And it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is the democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the peacemakers for a lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country, said Mr. Goering, and I think he was absolutely right. And we are being led by our media, by our politicians, in that direction, in both countries. I remember an ad that I saw, a famous uh, American actor, whose name I, he starred in, um, oh gosh, so many movies, um, an Afro, uh, an African-American, not a young, not not a young, yeah, free, what? Freeman, yes, yes. And he says, we are at war. And he does it very well. He's a wonderful actor. But he, you know, he, he tells you, we are at war and we must, da, 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 da. And of course, it's very scary. I, you know, I, there's nothing I can do about that except speak. And I speak. I'm happy to speak here today. I do this in Russia. And I'll keep doing it as long as I possibly can. Because there has to be some voice raised against what's happening. We're being manipulated. 
you know, the way Putin is portrayed, well, he's worse than Hitler. And even even Hillary Clinton compared him to Hitler. I mean, this is, I'm not a Putin fan, believe me, but you know, what's what's going on here? And of course, President Trump, well, even your own press is not too, uh, not too positive about him, but anyway. So basically, that's what I wanted to share with you. And see, I've only spoken for 45 minutes. And, uh, and I would very much like to discuss. Uh, if you, I hope you have problems. And, uh, problems. Coin, uh, uh, that was a Freudian slip, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, I hope uh, you I'm have not questions. So sure about that. I'm sure that, you know, what I've just said, in the sense of what's happened, it can't be argued about. I mean, this is, these are facts. But how you interpret them, that's a whole different issue. So uh, thank you again for, for listening, and let's, let's talk. Woo-hoo! So I am uh, acutely aware of which one of us has more experience in this kind of a uh, forum. So I, I think I will skip... Uh, the part where I ask the first question and open it up for, for questions and, and, uh, and comments with the following uh, suggestions and guidelines. Um, we have two microphones. Uh, please wait for a microphone. You may think that you have a loud voice, but the people behind you will not agree. So please wait um, for the microphone. Please uh, be aware of the fact that we have uh, some limited time for conversation and a lot of us, so please keep your questions uh, reasonably brief and we'll, and we'll try to keep things moving and we'll move back and forth um, from side to side. Um, so, uh, I'm going to start on this side. Go ahead, sir. I'm very interested in your um, take on Russian interference. Um, I, the U.S. intelligence overwhelmingly concluded that Russia is involved in U.S. elections, and I don't think I'm over. I'm over assuming in saying that the Russians are in favor of the Republicans. So I'm very interested in your take on that. Well, I think that's a, you know, a question a lot of people have. I'm happy to answer it as well as I can. I wouldn't say that the Russians support the Republicans. I mean, the Russians don't really know who the Republicans are. It's not part of their daily interest, or the Democrats for that matter. But is this microphone working? Yes. Yeah, okay. But it is a fact that Republican presidents over the years have been the ones that have achieved breakthroughs with the Soviet Union. Nixon did when Jews were allowed to emigrate. This is 1972. Um, uh, Bush did. Reagan did. While the Democratic ones, such as Carter and uh, and uh, Clinton, uh, have not been so successful. But that's it. Russians did support, including the Russian leadership, I'm certain did support Trump. Now look, they had a choice. Hillary Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton said that that uh, Putin was a former KGB agent and had no soul and compared him to Hitler. Trump said, I think I can work with this man. I think we can do this. Now, yes, the Russians 
wanted him to win. And I think that's normal. Did the Russians interfere? Officially, Putin denies it. The Russians officially deny it. The U.S. intelligence, different intelligence, says it can't furnish the exact proof, but it is certain that they did. I've been reading just recently, you know, there was this huge, um, I don't know how many pages, a special issue in the New York Times about the, you know, pages and pages with, with wonderful, um, wonderful illustrations that are supposed to really prove, you know, like, like this, you know, this kind of thing. This is journalism. Interesting, isn't it? Um, and when you read the article very carefully and you ask yourself, it's not an article, it's one, two, three, four, with graphics, five, six, six pages of the New York Times. And when you read it carefully, you ask yourself, why was it published now? There's got to be a reason for this, right? I mean, this happened a while ago. What is the idea? And what you find at the very tail end is that over the past few years in this country, the popularity of Mr. Putin has increased by 11%. And the number of people who believe that the Russians interfered has gone down by five. That's a good reason to publish something like this. And this is a very detailed, interesting um, story that doesn't furnish any proof, but it's very well done as the New York Times does this. This is just one. So I said, this came out September 20th. The next one comes out in Time Magazine, which is October 1st, not yet there. Big story on the same thing. But this is, again, the interference of the Russians. And then we have another story in the New York Times of September 26th. So I'm saying to myself, wow, this is like a kind of a salvo, cannons are going. And I have to ask myself, is there a reason for this? And I would ask you, you know, why now? Does this have to do with the midterm elections? I think it probably does. Now, did the Russians interfere? I think they probably did. I think they probably did. Um, was that effective? I doubt it. I very much doubt it. They didn't spend a whole lot of money, about $100,000, which is really nothing when you talk about the elections. But they did, you know, some interesting stuff, if you will. I, I believe that to actually think that Trump won the election because of Russian interference, you have to be very naive for that. I mean, a farmer in Idaho was influenced by Russian propaganda. I mean, I worked in Russian, Soviet propaganda for many years. And I'm not of the highest, how should I say this? Uh, I mean, it's not that great, that propaganda. You know? Uh, it's not something I'm proud of what I did. I mean, perhaps 
what I do today is because of what I did back then. You know, John Mea culpa. But um, really, was Putin the man who said, let's do this? I don't know. I can't say yes or no to that. I'm a journalist. Give me proof. Give me proof. And I'll say yes or no, depending on that. But I think, yeah, there was probably an attempt to do it. And so what? Does America ever interfere in elections? Anywhere? Never? You know, why is it, why is it okay for you and not okay for them? You know, that, that's a question. Well, I got an answer to that from one former CIA uh, high-ranking gentleman. He said, well, you see, yes, we do interfere. But we interfere for good, and you interfere for bad. So I thought, well, that's it. That's you know. so. That's how I'd answer your question. I would say yes. I would not exaggerate the uh, the result of that, the impact of it, and I would say that it's being used as a political toy, ploy, in this country now, for a variety of reasons. And it only really surfaced after Hillary lost. Before that, it wasn't there. But you had to find a reason why she lost. And of course, it was the big bad Russian bear. And that's part of the course, isn't it? Let's have the next question. Uh, what is your opinion of the past Trump-Putin uh, meeting? And do you think it was for show, or do you think it's actually a uh, reason trying to better our relations? Even if it was for, sh for show, it was good. It's, it was good for... How should I put this? For public feeling, at last, these two men, one of whom... Okay, I have to stop that and... Update these to make more room.